Welcome to Theosophia, a podcast for women's voices in theology. I'm your host, Sarah Elizabeth Smith, and today is November 5th, Monday, 2018, the day before midterm elections. Y'all get out and vote. I got my absentee ballot for Oklahoma like two weeks ago to sidestep the craziness of election day. And let's be real, on a Tuesday in the middle of the week, I don't have time to stand in line, y'all. So if y'all haven't done the absentee, I, I highly recommend it. You just order online, they send it to your house, and you have time to, to do your research and get your stuff lined up so you know what you're doing. The only thing that might be a pain is is to get that thing notarized, which I got to do at my school, which I'm lucky because we have one here, so it was really quick and easy. But go vote, y'all. Exercise those rights so we can create change and have our voices heard, especially for us women. Get out there. And a quick update in my world, I wanted to share a couple thoughts I had from our diocesan convention I attended over the weekend. So there's only one Episcopal diocese in the state of Oklahoma, which is crazy. There are like three in my last state of Tennessee. Anyways, it was really, really cool to see so many women and clergy callers. Um, we have a lot more bivocational priests and deacons than I thought we had. So that was really cool to see. And it was also really lovely to meet a bunch of younger cl- clergy. Lots of folks under 40 that were leading workshops and that are in charge of parishes and whatnot. Super encouraging to see as a young person trying to become ordained. And lastly, our bishop is a pretty cool dude. He, he ret- he's a retired police officer and a, I believe an FBI agent. He's a huge guy with a commanding presence, just like you'd think a cop would have. And, and he cried two different times during the convention, and it was just kind of beautiful and heartwarming to see him you know, his human side, like the rest of us, and like he has feelings. So that was pretty cool. And sometimes I think we don't get to see that side of our leaders. So it was just really neat to get to share that space with him and and see his heart a little bit. And he also made a, a, a joke about using our summer campgrounds to produce medical marijuana to help fund the diocese, which I think is a pretty astute idea. I'm not sure how serious or not he was about that, but I think he could be on to something there about church growth. Okay, enough about my weekly musings. The next two weeks, I have the distinct privilege and honor to host the wonderful Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza. You can find Dr. Robin's work on irobin.com and activisttheology.com, and their their bio on the website reads the following... Knowing intimately that the borderlands are a place of learning and growth, Dr. Robin draws on their identity and heritage as a queer Latinx in everything that they do. From doubt to divine and everywhere in between, their call as an activist theologian demands the vision to disrupt hegemony and colonialist structures of multi-layered oppression. As an anti-oppression, anti-racist, non-binary, transgressive Latinx, Robin takes seriously their call as an activist theologian and ethicist to bridge together theories and practices that result in communities responding to pressing social concerns. Robin sees their work as a life-orienting vocation, deeply committed to translating theory to practice and embedding in reimagining our moral horizon to one which which privileges a politics of radical difference. 
Y'all, these next two episodes are so rich with theological mind bombs. You're going to have to listen to them a couple times. I'm just so excited to share this episode with you, especially as Robin brings to the world a unique perspective from their lived experience as a queer, gender nonconforming Latinx scholar. Robin's identity highlights the limits of our language to define all human experience, especially if I, as I've set up this podcast to be a space for women's voices in theology. The word woman is very limiting, and it fails to capture all of our voices of the marginalized and oppressed groups whose voices I truly believe we need to hear from and voices I want to promote in this podcast. And just as God cannot be limited to one name, neither can the lived experiences of human beings and our identity. And Robin's identity beckons us to know the Imago Dei in so many more images and metaphors. And Theosophia isn't just for women's voices, but all the voices that are not seen and heard or assumed in the singular language I'm using for the sake of marketing this podcast. I'm really thankful for Robin and the other folks that call attention to the ways in which we we all get caught up in silencing and excluding the other myriad of beautiful ways God has created us in their image. Okay, enough from me, y'all. Here's Dr. Robin Henderson-Espinoza. So Robin, why don't we start with just talking about where you're from? your spiritual and religious background. Thing, yeah. Things yeah. Of that nature. So I like to say I'm from Northern Mexico, the Republic of Texas. <laughs> and, um, that's important because my mother's family is from Mexico and my father's family is um, from Scotland. Oh, wow. Okay. Or, you know, the, I mean, but it's been generations. Um, before me right like mm-hmm. I would never claim Scottish as as like part of my heritage but you know they cut this they sort of come from um they migrated over so mm-hmm. uh yeah the Republic of Texas northern Mexico is uh, what I claim to be home um but I left in my mid-20s for the big city of Chicago to go to seminary mm-hmm. um and my my spiritual religious background is you know it's complex like many folks i'm sure um it it involves me um being enrolled in catholic school as a young kid uh, it involves me not making my first communion because i had theological questions and um and then it also involves me like having a come to Jesus moment at a Southern Baptist church and feeling really at home in Baptist life for many, many years until, until I really understood the gender discrimination and the discrimination against my person as a queer person and as a non-binary trans person and so I, you know, I left the church uh, d- right after seminary, and um, but nowadays spend most of my time in church preaching on Sunday as a guest preacher, and feel very um, sort of surprised by coming full circle. Um, and I am sort of a both and person when it comes to 
religion and spirituality that I both understand the deep harm that the church has done and that theology has perpetuated against multiply marginalized people, um, those who are multiply marginalized by the state, and those who continue to be most impacted by um, empire religion and bad theology. Um, yet, I'm a theologian. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so what type of, I have a hundred questions to follow up. What? Sure. So you grew up Catholic. Your family was Catholic? Well, I didn't really grow up Catholic. My mom disenrolled me in Catholic school. Okay, okay. Um, and my mom would take me to different churches uh, while we were growing up, the Lutheran church, the Catholic church, the Baptist mm-hmm. church, whatnot. And, you know, I just started riding the bus to the Baptist church um, while I was also attending Catholic school. And, you know, for, for, many, for many Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, Catholicism is mm-hmm. the sort of thing that you do, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I think that um, for me, my mom really um, played a pivotal role in helping me just sort of experience um, the the wide variety of spiritual traditions available. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, you know, I mean, she was invested in me being a good person at a very, very right. young age, right? Um, which is why I think she chose religion. And um, I mean, I feel very grateful for that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm still trying to be a good person and be a moral person. Um, and theology became sort of my poison to, to, <laughs> become, to become a moral person. <laughs> I like that word choice, poison. Um, so could we talk a minute about how your identity as a non-binary person has affected perhaps your, your spirituality? Um, has, has it played a role in wanting to get more into your spirituality or problematized how you grew up or theologies you were learning? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I started reading feminist theology uh, when I was in college, you know, so, mm-hmm. so Mary Daly, Rosemary mm-hmm. Ruther, Elizabeth Schuster Fiorenza, right? All right. the sort of first generation, first gen folks, mm-hmm. Sally McFaig, Models of God, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I want to say that both feminist theory and, and feminist theology has played a really, I mean, it really galvanized my theology in that experience matters and Mm -hmm. experience of those who are most impacted and most marginalized by things like the empire and imperial powers uh, matter. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that I've always been gender nonconforming and gender queer. And when I was in seminary, I mean, I didn't have this language of non-binary, but I knew that um, I didn't dress like a female or like a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew that I wasn't invested in becoming a man. Um, and I, the, the best I could do was that, okay, yeah, I'm gender nonconforming. I'm gender queer. And there was this other term, gender fuck, that Kate Bordstein um, came up with. And like, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what I am. Um, but, you know, this, this sense of I always, I always early on um, in my seminary days, 
I always really struggled with the binary. And I think that the more I read about apophatic theology and the via negativa mm. and, mm-hmm. and the sort of negation, right. Mm. Um, of that, of that way of thinking that when I got into my doctoral program, I was like, oh yeah, non-binary makes a lot of sense to me. And for me, it's a theological position, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe all theology is ethics. And so in my claiming non-binary, um, I'm also saying a lot about who I am, that that I cannot be held by um, these poles, these, these socially constructed poles uh, that then get um have prescriptions of behavior and and um essence and whatnot um so i really i really have been seeking to move out of an essentialized gender orientation i think my entire life um and i think theology and theory and philosophy has really been the tool to help me do that Mm. Um, and i continue to do that Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. that's wonderful it's definitely theology has definitely been a huge part of me in my yeah. life uh in yeah. terms of understanding my sexuality and giving um philosophical and theological understanding to my experience just like a language yeah even just to be able to talk about being gay or being queer um, yeah in my yeah my experience but um yeah so formative so helpful um so what made you want to go to seminary what was what was that call like you know i i mean i do think about my work as call and vocation um but you know in my early 20s when my two cis white professors said you need to go to grad school you need to go to seminary i didn't have a clue what they were talking about i mean i'm first generation um, college student and certainly first generation graduate school student. And where'd you do undergrad? I went to undergrad at Hardin Simmons University in Texas. Okay. In Abilene, Texas. Mm-hmm. And so I had to like ask around and and figure out what does it mean to go to grad school. I had to have help on on my application. Um, and I really saw, I mean, I mean, it really was sort of the gateway to becoming uh, for me because mm. it, it, I mean, and, and I think we don't talk about this a lot around um, queer people of color gaining access to mm. systems and institutions. Mm. And I think as a mixed race Latinx who, who, had white folks invested in them, which mm-hmm. is all sorts of complicated, right? We can talk about the sort of racial dynamic of that, but mm-hmm. but to be gifted with professors who who saw something, um, who saw aptitude and potential, mm-hmm. um, which is also a little bit fucked up too, right? That 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 we have to sort of perform at a level um, to to be to be lifted up into graduate school, but that, that, so, so I, I have a both and analysis about this, but in my early twenties, when these two white professors said, you should really do this, um, 
you know, I was like, oh, okay, well, I mean, I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but like, I'm just going to jump into the deep end, right? <laughs> and, you know, it was the best thing for me because I left Texas and um, I left everything that I knew. And um, my partner and I at the time, we moved and um, we we got to know Chicago and mm-hmm. um, I hated the winters and, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I really, I really became a thinker and I really leaned into my vocation as theologian mm-hmm. and, and I, and, and it happened because someone, someone recommended that I should do further study. Um, and, and I attended Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary in, in the north suburb of Chicago in Evanston. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in the city and took the train up uh, to, to Evanston, which is just across the border there of Chicago. And I studied with a brilliant theologian, Dr. Nancy Bedford. And, you know, training under her, I mean, I still call her my teacher. Um, she 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 taught me how to be a theological feminist. And I think that she taught me how to be a theological queer, even though I was deeply closeted at the time because it was such a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. It's United Methodist seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really sort of, I, I really had a chance to sink my teeth into theory and into theology in ways that I, I, ne- I, I just wouldn't have had I stayed uh, in, uh, in Texas. Mm-hmm. Do you see doing that hard, like, ascesis work and the self-discipline of the academy, a way in which you experience the divine or, um, well, obviously I mean, knowing yourself better, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I sort of take a panentheist approach to things that God is in all things. And, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. and I think that, I think that my, you know, so much of my becoming a theologian is like working my salvation out, mm-hmm. right? And, and doing the thinking um, and the disciplined work. Um, I'm not a person who is tied to certainty. And I believe that the tyranny of certainty is a thing that we must dismantle and eradicate. And so, you know, the, the, the divine doubt that I have and the questions that I have that I hold in my heart, um, I think are all part of me figuring out what it means to live a good life, uh, what it means to be a, um, good citizen right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um there there is a certainly a sort of moral um thing to my to my orientation um because i i do believe that our social practices matter and i believe that you know the way i think the way i believe um, my politics are all part of how i've come to understand the divine and um my attempt to embody the best of what the divine has to offer uh, in ways that will create sustainable change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's rich, very rich. So what was the move into doctoral work right after seminary? Were you still feeling called and pushed to do more? Yeah. I mean, I, um, 
you know, by the time I, I, I did an academic degree in seminary and, mm-hmm. Um, by the time that I finished that, I was like, yeah, I think I'm being called to do the PhD. And, um, but I took three years off in between master's and PhD work. Mm. And, um, and it was really good time for me to sort of figure out what I wanted to do. I, I applied to anthropology programs cause I thought, Oh, let me just be like an observer who, um, you know, researches other people. And like, I don't have any training in anthropology, but <laughs> I, I thought it was a brilliant idea because I'm, I'm a five on the Enneagram and I just like to investigate and observe people. Right. And, um, you know, I, I interviewed at a school in Illinois and they said to me, like, you, you're a theologian. You, you need to be applying to theology programs. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I applied to theology programs, and instead of going to Loyola, Chicago, to become a Catholic social thinker, I went to the University of Denver to do an interdisciplinary PhD that was both continental philosophy and theology. And, mm-hmm. and it was one of the best things for me that I could hold on to the orthodox training that I had that I, that I really got from Garrett and really explore continental philosophy and queer theory at the doctoral level. Um, though I had been reading some queer theory um, in my master's and um, yeah, I mean, it really was about uh, vocation and doing the PhD and I really sought to ground myself in that work and mm-hmm. to, be, to be the best critical thinker that I could be. Mm-hmm. Um, in the best ways possible. Mm-hmm. And now you kind of describe your work as you're a queer activist, you know, a public theologian and a Latinx scholar, and you call a lot of your stuff like activist theology, which I think is, is fantastic. I think if you're not theologian doing activism, I don't know what you're doing, but right. like, ex- can you explain those a little bit for folks that might not understand? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I have to say that when I finished my PhD, I um, I moved to the Bay Area and took a visiting post at the GTU. And mm-hmm. so I was teaching in Berkeley. And, you know, it was sort of always my dream to, to teach at the GTU because I thought, oh, it's queer Mecca, whatnot. And mm-hmm. the, the reality is, is, is um, those are not my people. And I was, I was doing so much work sort of, east of California. Of course, anything not in California is east of California. But I, you know, I found myself, I would, I would be teaching on one day and then, and then traveling to do work and speak at communities and universities and churches, whatnot, um, the rest of the week. And so I thought, okay, well, so I'm now I'm doing this public theology thing and, um, and I, you know, the Latinx scholar piece is, my wanting to hang on to my sort of cultural heritage and my racial orientation of being a mixed race Latinx and being committed to the liberation of uh, Latinx people um, in this current moment. And after the 2016 election, which I know we all remember, mm-hmm. um, I decided to move home to the South and to really reconnect with my roots. I had, I had been told by, a dear beloved in 2015 that I was disconnected from my roots and mm. 
and that I had lifeblood that was not um, really being fed by the academy and that I should think about returning home. Um, you know, I didn't know what, I didn't know, you know, returning to the South, like where, you know, where am I going to, where will I go? And I knew that I didn't want to go back to Texas, um, largely because of their homophobic and transphobic policies. And um, I was working with an organization that is here in Nashville and I decided, well, I'll just, I'll just move to Nashville and make my home base there. And Mm -hmm. um, I was continuing to do public theology work and continuing to talk about meaning and value in the public square. And that still very much was important to me. And so this thing um, called activist theology began to um, began to bubble up and emerge. And I've just finished a book on the topic, which is just a collection of stories on my becoming an activist theologian and um, it'll be out by Fortress uh, over the next year or so, and Great. and 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 th- my my work as as a queer activist, Latinx scholar, and public theologian is is also a confession of like I work in the hybrid spaces of church, academy, and movements, um, and I'm not willing to give up any of that because I think I think it takes a diversity of tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, to do the work of liberation. And, um, and so I've, you know, I've been on a journey for many years and um, now I'm home in the South and um, continue to travel. And I just got, I just got back from Indiana uh, last night. And I mean, I, I continue to be on the road and, and talk about queer activism, talk about public theology. Um, and I, and I, it's part of my sort of living theology and ethics out loud. And mm-hmm. I think it's part of the work of activist theology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent is being, is being that voice and you have all this blame education. I mean, that's, I know. I know. I think the hard, the hard thing though is making it accessible to the public. And even yeah. with my training, like I'm teaching courses at my church and I'm in the ordination process. And it's like, how do I bring this stuff down to a level that, you know, is people can relate to and consume without, you know, having to have these, you know, massive degrees in continental philosophy or in my case, right. you know, I did theological ethics. So I did a ton of continental philosophy too. Um, yeah. 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 So, um, I think that's the, the tough, tough part of it. What do you, what have you been speaking on mostly lately? Well, I want I want to actually go, I, would, I want, I'll tell you what I've been speaking on. And, and it's also a response to the question of how do you make it accessible? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. My moving back to the South has been a return to story. And so mm-hmm. um, my book on activist theology is a book of story. It's a collection mm-hmm. of stories. And, and, and I believe that my vocation as theologian is to translate theory to action and theology mm. to praxis. Mm. So how we make things accessible to people is we do the translation work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think story is a great um, modality mm-hmm. to do the translation work. Yeah. And so it's, it's bringing in the personal, which is always political mm-hmm. and, and really paying attention to, what are the theoretical concepts that can be mobilized in this story that can help, that can help teach. Right. So Mm -hmm. 
um, I, I've been speaking on queer activism. I've been speaking on queer theology. I've been speaking on, um, you know, anti-racism, white supremacy. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I've just been speaking on um, our, certainly our current, our current moment um, in our political theater. And um, I've been speaking on, what does it mean to engage in this current moment? Mm -hmm. Um, What, what, what is, um, how do you be faithful in this moment as Mm -hmm. an LGBTQ person? Um, Yeah. I mean, I've just been speaking on a wide variety of things that I think are both personal and political and, um, and it's been such a great joy to, to do this work and, you know, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life right now. Mm-hmm. You're doing some seriously good work, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Lots, lots and lots. Um, yeah. So, so needed. Um, a word that you kept using that people might, I just wanted you to clarify and talk about what liberation means for you. Yeah. Um, and why that's so important to what you're doing in the way yeah. you see and do theology. Yeah, you know, liberation, I, um, I'm trained as a liberationist. I'm trained in Latin American liberation theology and um, U.S. liberation theology, you know, black liberation theology, U.S. Latino theology. Um, I've read my fair share of womanist theology and ethics, whatnot. And liberation is is a response to... Um, prolonged abuse and and exploitation that is oppression. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we are not doing theology to respond to oppression and to eradicate oppression and work for the emancipation of all creation, uh, then I think we're not doing good theology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're actually doing bad theology. And my my vocation as theologian is to do harm reduction mm. and and i think liberation is collective liberation is is the best harm reduction that we can be doing in this moment um and and there's lots of yeah i'm not the only one doing this i should say you know there's lots mm-hmm, of people doing mm-hmm. this and i'm trying to um respond faithfully to um the public platform that I have and to do the most faithful work that I can do in this moment. Um, but we should be paying attention to, to queer and trans people of color. Um, in this moment, um, we should be paying attention to, um, black trans women and we should be paying attention to, you know, all trans women of color. Um, and in this particular moment, because they too have a story of liberation, right? Like as a masculine of center, non-binary trans person, um, I'm not the only person who has a story of liberation. I'm just trying to be faithful in the small things to, to respond to pressing social concerns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, it's so important that all those things you just said of who you are is doing this, this work. Right. Um, Cause not everyone has had, you know, you know, your particular experiences of being in the Academy and kind of giving the, getting like in the places of power and empire a right. little bit to be able right. to go into those spaces and kind of speak truth to those right. 
you know, places of power. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And you said you're preaching and stuff. Do you go to a particular type of church or are you affiliated with a particular tradition or? Well, I, I like to call myself a lifelong Baptist. And <laughs> um, I mean, I, I still, um, I mean, I don't attend, I don't attend church every Sunday, partially because I am traveling so much. Right. Um, but you know, when I, when I preach, I have preached in United Methodist churches. I preached in, um, disciples of Christ churches. I preached in Presbyterian churches. I preached in Baptist churches. I'm really, I'm, I'm really preaching, um, throughout the Protestant tradition. And, mm-hmm. and that's really exciting. But, but my, my tradition, my tradition of my spiritual origin is Baptist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's important because, you know, Christianity being my native language, mm-hmm. um, I have tried to be faithful to, um, to responding to my native tongue, spiritual tongue. And, you know, I, I, I didn't become Buddhist. I didn't become anything else. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I became a, I became a Christian social thinker, Christian mm-hmm. theologian mm-hmm. Um, to respond to the thing that shaped me in mm-hmm. deep ways. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably why the church continues to be something of importance to you and a vehicle through which you do, yeah, I mean, I think I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, and and that's both exciting and um, challenging. Right. And, um, I mean, I don't really know what to do um, with the the fact that. Um, yeah, I mean, the church continues to call me into being in in really in mm-hmm. really deep ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and um as it should yeah i mean that that's a, that's both a, that's both a virtue and a vice right 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 thanks again dr robin for taking the time to share your story with us i can't wait to share next week's episode Dr. Robin and I explore the ethics and theology of polyamory. Please take a moment to rate and review and subscribe to Theosophia on iTunes, or you can also download the new the new app called Radio Public and listen to us there along with all your other favorite podcasts without having to make an account. Also check out our social media pages and our Patreon page where you can donate to Theosophia to help support this Labor of Love podcast. See y'all next week. Peace.